This is the case. Report. Welcome back to another episode of the Case Report. I'm Leah, and I'm delighted to have you join us again. This month, we have something a little bit different for you. But to note, it was recorded earlier this year, prior to the tragic events in Donegal and around the world last month. Our hearts go out to all the victims, to all their families, and to all of the emergency services that responded. These cases are incredibly challenging, both in terms of physical and mental resources. Hopefully, this episode can give some helpful tips to the management of a major incident. Right, so let's crack on. Um, and as we know, we need all hands on deck for this one. So welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Deirdre Breslin and advanced paramedic, Mr. Joe Mooney. Good morning. Hello. How are you? Thank you very much for having us. So right, Joe, it's half past seven on a Friday evening. The sun is setting. You're at base and you get an alert from control that you have an evening train which is de- derailed in the countryside. Fortunately, you have no further information available. You're going to be the first paramedic crew on scene. Tell me what you need to know. Okay, so as we uh, as we get to the scene, then uh, as because we're on the on the ambulance, there's two of us. The driver will uh, park up the ambulance and uh, leave the lights on, and then work with fire and guard if they're if they're present and when they do arrive. And then we can confirm a visual uh, report stating that a major emergency is either standby or declared through our control room. And then the driver will leave the key in the vehicle and act as a communication officer until one of the actual officers arrive. And then myself, I'll carry out as person two a scene survey and then send a methane message to our control room. Uh, can we get a little bit more information about what uh, what I see when I arrive on the scene? Uh, Leah, please. So unfortunately, we have a train that has derailed. The first two carriages are on their side. There's approximately, you estimate, maybe about 75 passengers on board. And that's including those that have already disembarked from the back carriages. You're located in the countryside. You're approximately 30 minutes away from your nearest major hospital by road. Dispatch already have your location. There doesn't appear to be any hazard. So no evidence of kind of any fires, chemicals, water, lakes, rivers and control are now available to take your methane message. So our meantime message uh, would be a major emergency declared. So it's not standby anymore, as we can see it's actually happening. So major emergency declared. Exact location is outside O'Reilly's farm. The type of incident is a train derailment. The hazards on scene at the moment is metal, glass, electricity and body fluids from the injured people. Uh, access is via a local road or there's really good access from the air for helicopters. There's about 75 uh, casualties and emergency services on scene at the moment is just us and the ambulance, but we need guards, fire uh, and anyone else that's around the area there. Yeah, absolutely. So controller processing that now. Um, unfortunately, we are into after hours, so we don't have any access to aeromedical services, but they're going to try and do their best. Um, you mentioned guardies, so they're going to be on scene with you and the fire brigade. Um, anyone else that might be helpful to you? Yeah, is there any of the critical care doctors or off-duty doctors that can help and support as well? Absolutely. So there's two critical care cars on the way to you and they'll be out in about 15 to 20 minutes and they've tasked um, some off-duty critical care doctors. So dispatch, you're working on all this. Your message is received. Continue your on-scene management in the interim. 
Okay. Can we also see if there's actually critical care paramedics as well with the uh, critical care retrieval service as well? Because they will be, they can bring another level of skill as well on top of the advanced paramedics. But absolutely, yeah. So at scene, we won't be providing any treatment or transport at this will hinder the early stages of the setup. So when we do have it all set up and we are triaging people, uh, we can tag all the walking people green unless they have a catastrophic hemorrhage and they become red. Then any unresponsive with no breeding will open their airway, and if we don't, if they don't breed, we tag them uh, white, and depending on their vital signs, we will tag all the other patients red or orange. White is white is dead. Green is walking with no catastrophic hemorrhage. Uh, walking with a catastrophic hemorrhage is red, and then depending on the vital signs, it's orange or red. Um, so you have a bit of a better control on the scene now as much as you can. We have an estimate on seventy five casualties. We've three category reds, seven category yellows, 40 category greens, and the remainder seem on initial review, thankfully unharmed. Um, we'll go through the triage categories a little bit later on. Um, other paramedic crews, I'm along with the Guardia, use some critical care paramedics and doctors on scene. So Deirdre, it's now close to eight o'clock and you get the central control ambulance phone ringing in the department. You have a pre-alert that there's early news of a major incident. A train has been derailed. They're about 30 minutes out. You have an approximate number of 75 casualties and three category reds. What are your first thoughts? Right. So uh, in the acute phase of something like this, in the first minutes to hours, I'll be looking to work with the CNM of the department and obviously with our consultant in charge, to alert people that there is the possibility of a major incident, a mass casualty incident. So while we obtained some more information about that, I would be gathering my ED team that are there for the evening already, uh, looking to assign some roles and at the same time uh, looking to get more staff on the floor. Uh, obviously, we need to safety to cancer department. So those would be the kind of first things that we would need to think about. In terms of how that happens and how that works, we would initially start by confirming the major incident. So if we get a call from NEOC, uh, we need to ensure that it's a valid call by calling back and, and just confirming that we have the details right and, and the methane message has been received correctly. In the case of an event like this, with you know anticipated 75 casualties, um, including three reds, that would overwhelm, I think, any emergency department in the country as it stands. So it would be, you know, completely uh, understandable to act to activate the major incident within the hospital at that point much better to activate it and then step back if necessary than than not to be prepared so we would activate the major incident um, and that creates a, a cascade of effects one of the things that'll happen is that switch will start to alert staff uh, within the rest of the hospital of the major incident um, and advise them to attend ed to help out and the other things that we would do at that point would be to get our own hospital major incident plan, which uh, is usually kept within the emergency department. Or there should be a copy of it there. Um, so get that plan because that will really guide the next steps. And it also just removes a bit of the cognitive load of trying to think of what we need to be doing. So the major incident plan will contain um, roles and descriptions of roles and action cards for those roles to guide people through their first few steps um, during the acute phase. Some of the important roles would be, you know, triage doctors and triage nurses uh, who should be really senior clinicians and, and experienced um, staff, because obviously triage on arrival to ED uh, is also going to affect flow through the department. We also have senior doctors um, leading the individual zone. So, you know, we would have a, a green, yellow and red zone, for example, um, and have people in charge of just general management of those areas who would communicate directly with the uh, lead clinician for the major incident. 
Uh, and one of our first priorities, obviously, is also going to be to empty the department as quickly as possible to make space for uh, people arriving from the incident. So in, in whatever way we can, we would do this by discharging anyone who could be safely discharged, obviously with appropriate information and management advice and um, advise them you know, whether they need to seek follow up with their GP or, or to come back another day um, in as brief but as safe a way as possible. Anyone in recess who doesn't need to be in recess, we would hopefully move down to a, a cubicle. And anyone who doesn't need to be still in the department, we would hope, but, but needs admission to a hospital, we would move to a ward as quickly as possible. So really that should all occur over the first few minutes after activation of the uh, incident and then leave space then for patients coming in. Great. Yeah. It's a really complex and tricky scenario. And it's interesting seeing the parallels there between the management pre-hospital and in-hospital as well with the triage categories and, you know, the clear handovers to senior colleagues as they arrive on scene. Um, so that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so you've got the first five patients of the red and yellow categories. They're starting to arrive in the department. You also have a number of ca- um, casualties that are arriving by car and on foot to the emergency department and presenting themselves to triage. And some of the in-house on-call colleagues are down to help also. You're inundated with calls. Other SHOs, registrars, all looking to help. Well, that's great. <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> to have so much help. Uh, and we would definitely you know, in the first uh, instance, be assigning people to crucial roles. Um, but as we as we continue on and if we're continuing to get calls from SHOs and registrars, it's important to consider that this is something that is probably not going to be finished within the first few hours. So it's going to be really important to um, have staffing for the following day and, and to make sure that we're developing a roster system um, for the incident that allows people to get adequate rest. Um, so we would have someone in a sort of staff management role within the incident who would be receiving um, staff as they present to the department or as they contact the department, assigning them to areas uh, where they can be of use. And um, if those areas are full or if we do have an adequate staffing and um, making sure that there are people filling in the gaps uh, over over the next days to hours. Yeah, it's such a, a dynamic situation. Absolutely important to kind of make sure that shift changeover is available to you. Um, and it does come. So everything run, runs relatively smoothly as much as it can in these scenarios throughout the department. All hands are on deck and everyone's being assessed, managed appropriately. Um, you hear that from control that the red and yellow categories have been cleared. Um, and over the next number of hours, the walking wounded, as we colloquially call them, will be arriving um, as more resources are available. Um, you get the tap from the consultant in charge in the early hours the morning that it's time for you and your evening staff to head home um what's going through your head oh yeah um so going through something like this can obviously be extremely challenging um and you know a mass casualty incident can be mentally and emotionally and physically taxing for healthcare providers like obviously um in the case of pre-hospital staff like joe and and our in-hospital team um i think you know before sending people home it it would be worthwhile to grab the team aside um, for a, a quick hot debrief just to talk through some of the things that we've we've gone through during the day because obviously this is not something that happens very often and it's possibly going to be the only major incident that people have been involved in. Um, so it's it's important to check in with staff and, and see how they're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and having kind of good, clear debriefs, you know, in, in, in the early acute phases before people are going home after a night like that is is really hard. Um, so definitely a clear debrief is great. Um, so well done, guys. Uh, we've safely managed the acute phase of a very challenging case. Um, and it goes on to be managed in the next couple of days and also over the next couple of weeks as well and managing it. Um, so we might go through a few things um, because it's a very complex case um, and to discuss it further that people may not have a huge amount of exposure to these things, thankfully. Um, so Joe, maybe you want to start us off. Um, what exactly is the definition for a major incident? Yeah, so a major incident is any event where the number of casualties and the, at the rate at which they occur cannot be handled within the normal routine service arrangements. The term mass casualty incident and major incident tend to be used interchangeably. Uh, it also can depend on what will overwhelm community, location and resources. Injuries can be traumatic or medical, for example, in chemical exposures. They can be have m- multiple injuries and multiple wounds. And then the goal is to maximize the chances of reducing mortality and morbidity by effective uh, utilization of resources to the scene. Yeah, so there's a huge amount of organization, I guess, with that. Um, and also even that idea of having, you know, it's what's going to overwhelm local resources. So that's that's very fluid. It depends where you are in the country or where you are in the world, what that um, threshold for resources is um, and what you would declare a mass casualty incident um, as being. So absolutely. Um, so no surprise, um, as with everything in emergency medicine, a structured approach um, is critical in something like this. Um, and we want to remove that cognitive load you were talking about, Deirdre. Um, are there any tools that we can use both pre-hospital and in the ED, do you think, to kind of structure our response to something like this? Yeah, I think um, I think CSCAD is a helpful tool that can be helped, that can be used really at all stages, all levels, um, and is, is relatively easy to remember. So that stands for Command Safety communication, assessment, triage, treatment, and some people would add in transfer there uh, as a final one. Um, so, it, you know, it's very easy and it's often tempting to just rush into situations, do what we know best, uh, which is to treat, obviously, um, as emergency physicians. But there are situations um, like this where we need to remember what our primary goal is. And I think starting with CSCAT will help to and sort of uh, structure your response and and make sure that you're managing these things appropriately. Yeah, and we'll link uh, CSCAT in the show notes as well to kind of be able to go through that. Um, Joe, you, you gave us a great example of scene control and kind of the early triage of patients. Um, I, I think the concept of triage is, is so interesting in, in terms of I, I learned during my research for this that the French trier is for it to sift or select or separate between patients um, and in the coordination of a case for this, it, it's so important. Um, what kind of things are you thinking about when you're triaging patients or how do you work through it yeah very good yeah that's that's a lovely fact Leah. Uh, i'll have to i'll have to bring that to our collegial conversations now in the ambulance service <laughs> uh, yeah so we all know that triage is one of the hardest parts of emergency medicine and, and pre-hospital care as well it takes away the clinician's uh, subjective bias and replace it with a means of assessing of how how currently right now physiologically stable a patient is Current, it's important because the triage should be fluid and repeated. The walking well can eventually lose their output. So again, so a triage at once, triage again, triage a tour time for luck. Uh, there are many ways of triaging and the attack uh, 2014 makes any catastrophic hemorrhage a red or a T1 and should be prioritized for treatment and transport. 
So again, as we were saying earlier on, the walking wounded with a major hemorrhage is actually a red. He's not a green anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyone who's unresponsive but has a patent airway and is breathing or is conscious with a respiratory rate below 10 or above 30 is also a, a category red or a T1. If they're conscious and tachycardic at a heart rate of over 120 beats a minute or they have a delayed cock refill, they can be also escalated to this even if their respiratory rate is normal. Anyone conscious but not walking with normal vital signs will be a T2 or a yellow. The walking injured or green or T3 or green and non-injured would be declared to be a survivor's reception centre and marked as a T4 or blue. Anyone without a patent airway or evidence of breathing on initial assessment is marked black or white as we do in in Ireland uh, or deceased. And it's important to remember that there's no role for CPR uh, in major emergency uh, scenarios. All these categories are, will be fully displayed in the show notes as well. I think we're going to add it in. But this is this is the one thing where uh, CPR is not is not done uh, when there's when there's 75 patients to be assessed. Uh, red category patients need to be prioritised for transport, and they need urgent care within minutes to one hour. Yellow patients will deteriorate if not seen within the first few hours, and delay may increase both mortality and morbidity. Green patients or the walking wounded uh, can can basically uh, can wait. They're nearly fit to sit. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, I, I think as well, there's so many different triage kind of ways of triaging that I've seen and in flow charts. And I, I guess it's really good to kind of check in what your local one is, um, especially within the hospitals. Um, but what's interesting is that the colours always remain the same, even if T1, T2, all this kind of changes, the colours always remain the same. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will, we'll link those to the show notes. Deirdre, obviously it's, you know, such a an instinct of ours that when we come across these scenarios, we do want to treat these patients um, as we triage them, um, whether that's in pre-hospital care or in hospital care. Is there any role? Can we treat them? Oh, yeah, it'd be tempting, wouldn't it? Um, So I I think some allowable interventions would be reasonable, but you have to be very clear on what that line is. So your your job in triage is to triage. um, And you have to remember that there are so many other things going on that are important so you can't get stuck into treating one individual patient so little things that you could do would be things like putting someone in the recovery position or putting on a tourniquet or inserting an opa so these are time critical quick interventions that are not going to delay you unnecessarily but the concept of the triage butterfly rings through so you have to really aim for 30 seconds per patient um as, as a goal yeah, absolutely. It's just quantity that we need to to aim for. So, Joe, you've one ambulance in this case, and you had three red category patients to get to Deirdre. Um, you've done your initial triage. Is there anything else we can do now to decide between these category one patients? Lovely. Thanks, Lee, for just giving me one ambulance with uh, with three red patients. Uh, yeah. So I do as try. Most, <laughs> <laughs> as more people arrive on scene, we can al- almost uh, look at re-triaging people. So again, triage them once, triage them twice, uh, and we can use the triage sort and this time we're taking into consideration the, the glass of coma scale, their systolic blood pressure and their respiratory rate. And thankfully, if our medical hairs are standing on the back of our neck about the, this patient, this takes into consideration too. We'll pop a link into the show notes also about the, uh, the triage sort. But yeah, so take the tree and whoever's the sickest is getting the ounce. Yeah, exactly. And just being able to escalate it, I suppose, if we're just not happy with the patient in front of us is, is really important, um, regardless of vitals or otherwise. So yeah, that's great. Um, 
What's difficult, I suppose, about our case is that it's so rural um, and there's scenarios where we may have, you know, access to a few different hospitals, not just one. Um, and it might be helpful maybe to stream patients based on, on the receiving facility. Um, Deirdre, are there any other things even from your end that we, we may need to think about in organising transfer? Yeah, I suppose um, being aware of the hospitals that are in the area. So some hospitals might be better equipped for different specialties or or have different admitting rights. And there may be patients suitable for smaller hospitals that can provide lower acuity care, while, you know, some patients should perhaps go directly to a, a, an area with a burns unit or, or something similar. So um, it's also important to remember that we have a pediatric population. So transfer to a dedicated pediatric trauma unit may be required. So where we can communication with receiving hospitals about how many they're able to take in in terms of level of priority is needed um, within the constraints obviously of of the uh, event. Yeah absolutely um, I think even talking about it has my nerves going and goosebumps all over me um, but sure look um, it's fair to say that I suppose in hospital Deirdre despite all hands on deck it, it is as you were saying so taxing mentally and physically on staff um, especially maybe for junior colleagues who, who may not even have exposure to major trauma you know in-house teams that are down and, and helping in resource with, with quite critically unwell patients do you have any methods I suppose for kind of maintaining welfare over kind of the acute phase and also in the days to weeks to come uh, with your colleagues? Yeah, it's going to be absolutely crucial. Um, so we need to be so mindful of the people that are, are working incidents like this and, and the effects that it can have on them. You know, aside from obviously all the stress of our day to day lives, uh, an event like this is is very significant. So um, it's going to be really important to be mindful of the psychological safety of our staff. Um, people might require, you know, counselling or um uh, certainly um, thorough debriefing after an event. So there are different ways of considering this. Um, critical incident stress debriefing would be one approach, but really this should be guided um, in conjunction with, uh, if possible, um, you know, occupational health and psychology uh, teams um, to to assist staff through through a major event like this. Yeah, so it's 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 so complex and, and very taxing, you know, and the, the psychological well-being is something we really need to emphasize in this. Um, Deirdre, we'll we'll throw a few extra links and stuff into the show notes, you know, a, a few bits about critical incident stress debriefing. And, you know, I know the pre-hospital services especially are, are quite good for supporting that. Um, so we'll yeah, absolutely. throw that into the show notes. Yeah, yeah we, have our, we have our critical incident stress management and, and it's very similar to what you in hospital colleagues do, but it's it's basically a cup of tea and, and a couple of bickies around, around the table. And we have a chat in there and it should happen within the first 72 hours and usually it happens within the first 72 minutes of something happening so uh if we if we get linked in with our our officers and we're offered SISM uh, to our uh, control room and then our SISM officers that we link in with then basically come out to the station and, and have a chat with us so yeah absolutely and it's something that we uh, we push quite hard pre-hospital I'm just going to, whoever's editing this, just hold my response to this, but that does not happen in the HSE whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it was only when I actually arrived to start working in Neoc a couple of weeks ago and they showed me like, there's a room for like, you know, crying and there's lava lamps and pictures of forests. Um, yes. And I was just absolutely shocked because none of that happens in hospitals. So maybe I actually directed that question the wrong way. <laughs> 
what do you mean you have lava lamps in control? I can't even get a break and you have lava lamps. Oh, Liam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's actually really cool. That's very impressive. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. That's that's really interesting to know about. And, and those techniques that we can take into hospital care as well and, and looking after our own colleagues, you know, in, in quite a high stress environment in order for us to be able to perform and kind of, you know, have excellent patient care uh, going forward. So, so that's great. Something that struck me even when I was researching for the this podcast, I suppose, was also to keep in mind, you know, these are very high profile events um, and, you know, there's often kind of high amounts of media coverage as well. Um, you know, Deirdre, I don't know whether you kind of have any thoughts on kind of managing media within, you know, the emergency department in, in the first number of hours or kind of reporters and stuff that are coming up to the emergency department. Oh, yeah. Um, And again, this is something that will usually be covered in the hospital's major incident plan. Um, There's going to need to be someone who's in charge of media. Um, So public relations officer um, and and someone, you know, allocated to be the spokesperson in consideration of the the need for like public statements. And there will also need to be an area that the media can be directed to away from the department, away from um, you know the the areas of activity so that any kind of media arriving to the scene aren't getting into the clinical areas um or, or into the the middle of everything while we're trying to help people yeah absolutely that's great guys and uh, so any key take-home points i suppose for you both uh, joe uh, yeah that you have to re-triage people you know the, the triage seven the triage sort that the the greens can get sicker the the orange can become red and the red can become white very quick so the ability to re re-triage people and then also the system uh, the critical stress management that we have to look after ourselves and even having a hot debrief with our colleagues in hospital as well can be a, can be a vital part of that chain absolutely yeah Deirdre? yeah i was gonna say the uh the debriefing obviously being hugely important um and to mind yourself to mind your team and to be aware of the effects that these events have on people but also then just to be familiar with your own hospital's major incident plan um go and talk to a consultant colleague about it um find out where it is have a look through it so you know what it looks like uh, hopefully an event like this won't happen in your hospital but if it does you want to be prepared um as best you can yeah absolutely these are you know events that don't come along too often but when they do we really need to know how to manage them um and so even taking a couple of minutes before your shift to just eyeball the major casualty or mass casualty incident protocol in the department um just even for comfort even if you're not memorizing the thing off um but just knowing where it is and the, the what it even looks like is is great so and um, that's awesome guys well done another i suppose not even just one life saved uh, many many lives saved so well done um and thanks for joining us back on the case report Thanks, Liam. Thanks, Emilia. Thanks for having me again. A pleasure. Right. So that was a great case from the team. Just before we head over to our adult in the room, we've got a short interruption from our regular scheduling. There's been some updates to the relevant pre-hospital CPGs that were involved in this case. So I've just held Joe back after class uh, just to discuss those updates just uh, that are uh, new since we've recorded that case. Joe, uh, what can you tell us? Hi, Mo. Thanks, Amelia. Yeah, so the, the triage civ CPG has been slightly updated to where the old one was. If anyone was walking, at, no matter what was wrong with them, they were automatically green. So green walk towards me. 
Uh, but there's actually been a, a quite a significant change as well that if they are walking, but they still have a catastrophic hemorrhage, they are now red automatically. So we can apply a tourniquet, mark and time the tourniquet, and then for our EMT colleagues, they can consider using a hemostatic uh, major hemorrhage dressing as well. So that's just a big change. So it's just because someone is walking towards you, doesn't mean that they're not extremely sick uh, for after a major emergency. So if they have a catastrophic hemorrhage, that we can apply a tourniquet and they become automatically red. Uh, another small little change, but a very important one, is if the person is unresponsive and when you open the airway, they start to breathe, that there, there is a new mandatory box now that we roll them in the recovery position. Uh, so again, if they're, if they're unresponsive, you open the airway, they start to breathe, they're automatically red, but don't forget to roll them in the recovery position because if you let go of their airway, they're going to lose that airway. So we uh, get them into a good position and move on. So they're just two two changes, but they're two they're two significant changes within the uh, within the CPG. Yeah. So that's from the uh, 2021 FAC CPGs, which are just coming into practice now, isn't that right, Joe? Absolutely, and they will be slightly updated and be re-released again from the Pre-Hospital Bridge Care Council. So yeah, that new uh, triage sieve um, in the FAC CPGs as well, it is remarkably similar to the new NHS uh, major incident triage tool, which I'd recommend everyone to have a look at. There's an article uh, around it published in the EMJ last month, and we'll link that in the show notes as well. All right, over to our adult in the room at last. Our adult in the room this month is a familiar face to the case dot report. Dr. Jason Vandervelde is a pre-hospital EM and critical care retrieval physician, working as the clinical lead for the HSE's national 24-hour telemedicine support unit, Medico Cork. Based in the ED in Cork University Hospital, he has a master's degree in disaster medicine and over 25 years experience in worldwide pre-hospital care. He's also a recent finisher of the Cork City Marathon, and if you haven't already checked out the story from his recent run, I urge you to do so. He successfully completed the race alongside the wonderful Olivia Keating, who required his critical care expertise at the roadside on the 2nd of June 2016. So far, they have both raised €5,000 for the West Cork Rapid Response Team, where Dr. van der Velde acts as medical director. The team is a voluntary organisation who respond to incidents in the community in their personal time, providing high-quality pre-hospital patient care. We encourage you to continue to support their cause at their GoFundMe page, which we'll link in the show notes. And somehow, after running 42 kilometres, he had the time to sit down and correct our homework. So that was a fantastic case by the guys. Jason, how did you find that uh, that case? Look, um, after all, a major incident, mass casualty incident, something else that's gone a little bit awry is really something that's challenging resources. So we're talking about a therapeutic vacuum. And uh, I don't know if you mind, but I, I don't tend to hold back here when, when I'm when I'm don't hold when back. I'm going on about that. I think look, I think we have to agree that our ultimate goal in a mass casualty situation is what less injured. Yep. Yeah. Fair enough. We want to see good headlines, and you know something bad's after happening, but the response has been appropriate, and uh, 
I think one of the problems that we do have when we have a massive event is that it's complex mm-hmm. by, by very definition. And healthcare in a vacuum is very complex. And really, we need to try and simplify things. Because if we don't simplify things, people will continue to die. Mm-hmm. And we have a number of legacy shackles that I think we need to break uh, to move forwards. And, you know, for example, the traditional approach of how we educate the general public. Mm-hmm. Traditional cordons, traditional first aid thinking and training. And I think we need to totally dis- disassemble and do away with traditional triage. Okay. And uh, that, that, this is, this is, this, these are my views after quite a long career in pre-hospital emergency medicine and I have a master's degree in disaster medicine. So I've kind of thought about this quite a lot, you know. And we've heard that inquests, they repeatedly highlight that the vital role of bystanders and mm-hmm. members of the emergency services who are off duty, caught up in a hot zone. Yeah. And they're the ones who have really started that life-saving care. They're the ones who really get in there and, and get things together. And I think we need to train the public. We, this will save far more lives than any coordinated response we do. So what is good value for money training? What do we need to teach people? So if we were sitting, living in an earthquake-prone country... We'll be teaching people drop, cover, hold on, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. The standard mantras of how to keep mm-hmm. yourself safe in an earthquake. What about a large fire? I mean, simple containment and evacuation drills will arguably save far more lives than the fastest fire service emergency response. What about a terrorist attack? The UK have got run, hide, tell. Yeah, and that will ultimately save more lives than teaching the masses CPR. It all comes down to public health, doesn't it? We've heard this all before in, uh, in, in, in another context, haven't we? I mean, think about it. The vast majority of massive hemorrhage in a marauding terrorist attack can probably only be controlled in the hot zone. And that's really by bystanders. Because the first five to ten minutes to bleed out. So really, you need hemorrhage control done by the public. And we're absolutely duty-bound to control the public because... Your coordinated police fire ambulance response is coming down the line 10, 15, 20. I mean, you would consider that a good response time. So now we're stuck with cordons. And we know that inflexible protocols cost lives. And um, now things go catastrophically wrong. And we heard about the Kirschlake report in the Manchester Arena bombings in 2017. And it's absolutely damning. You know, the response agencies were actively prevented from responding beyond that outer cordon. And this inflexibility was highlighted by the inquest as a key contributing factor to a number of preventable deaths. In any case, how do you define what is safe and what is unsafe? Particularly if that incident is, is, is actively spreading. It's logical that flow of people away from the hot zone or anywhere which could become hot is vital. And that's how, that needs to be our first train of thought into things, large car, car accident, large fire, large whatever it is, is get people moving out. But what about that hot zone? Hot zone thinking needs to change. At present, we have that therapeutic vacuum. The current strategy, for example, just an example, mm-hmm. is for a tactical team to leap over the dying, to continue to rapidly engage with, with, with the shooter, with all threat, you know, the threats at all costs, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, ta- current tactics for a fire and rescue at a major fire involving persons reported is to snatch rescue whilst actively providing some f- form of fire suppression. Mm-hmm. And of course, so, so control of the fire 
is their priority. So what do you think, for example, what, what, in a major road traffic collision on an icy motorway, mm-hmm. and we've all seen it, we've seen the N25 down here in Cork, and we've had yeah. big pileups with 30 vehicles. What is, what is the guardie's responsibility there? Yeah, I suppose to set up the cordon initially, and then... Stop tra- the traffic, exactly. isn't it? Okay, yeah. so prevent further accidents has to be that, yeah, yeah. that policing priority in that thing. So you get this threat risk balance. And where is the sweet spot? You know, um, and it can't simply remain at risk mitigation because too many people are actively dying. And you always need to ask yourself when overwhelmed, are there any obvious opportunities to prevent dying? And that might be breaking the rules. Hmm. So opportunities that do not compromise the mission to eliminate the threat if, if, if you are one of those tactical responders, so fire, uh, guardie, uh, or, or whatever. So you need to obviously do your job, okay? But is there first aid and medical training for police, fire, and other prime responses? Is it, is it, is it that full answer? Um, and again, you can't simply blame, for example... In the Manchester Arena, there was there was a huge amount of blame went to the police um, authority in that they were blamed for non-prioritizing of first aid, and a lot of their officers hadn't been properly mm. trained or had their upskilling trained. But you can't simply blame management for that non-prioritizing when the first aid and offer has has very little relevance for tactical mm-hmm. operations. Uh, and those first aid courses on offer are not taught by instructors actively who are trained in tactical operations. And if that hot zone is really crying out for rapid life-saving medical interventions designed specifically for, in that case, special operations policing. Um, and not just basic bandaging or stub-toe response, but I'm talking yeah. about, you know, it doesn't even need to be high-end. It, it's mm-hmm. the basics done well will ultimately save more lives. But those courses need to be specifically tailored to the industry it serves, not just some tick box exercise and whatnot. And it's, it's, we know already nearly half of actively bleeding patients will die in that first five minutes. So mm-hmm. to stop life-threatening hemorrhage with a tourniquet, that makes sense. Yeah. It also makes sense to rapidly attempt to manage a compromised airway with a simple mm-hmm. nasal pharyngeal airway. It's not bandaging or, or manually holding open an airway. Um, and this is really, you know, rapid attempts to temporize that dying process. But whatever you do, you know, you, you've got to keep moving forward. So in, in simple terms, um, Stevie O'Neill, one of the advanced paramedics uh, up in the, the Northeast, came up with this, this red or dead strategy. Um, and put simple, decide, is the patient red or are they dead? And the individual patient in this phase of care cannot take priority. And crucially, those guys who are responding to eliminate the threat need to keep their eye firmly on the tactical goal, maintain forward momentum. Mm. Fire service need to actively be, be looking at, say, fire suppression or, or, or doing the extrications, guardy holding that road, preventing the further accidents. But mindful that in that first phase of care, so for example, our, our paramedics arriving on scene at this horrific incident, they need to be mindful that there is cavalry coming behind them. And it's not getting yourself tied down with assessing every single patient. It's getting to that priority, red or dead. Okay, they're dead, move on. Red, definitely red. That's a priority. Let's ship them out. 
keep the flow moving. That That is our thing. So triage. Even when you do it by the book, I mean, the, the, the latest evidence, it suggests that we need to completely overhaul current triage protocols and start to think about flow dynamically. Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? So even the MT24, all the, I mean, there's so many acronyms out there, but they're all the latest stuff that we teach. Our, our own FEC protocols that we, that, that, that we have in place, you will create a bottleneck of yellows. And in that bottleneck of yellows, you will still have reds who are actively mm. dying. So I, I want to make it even more simple for you than, than under or over triage. It takes 45 seconds to properly triage a patient as per the current FEC guidelines. 45 seconds. Current mm-hmm. fastest, gold standard. So let's take 100 patients. 45 seconds times 100. 4,500 seconds or 75 minutes or an hour and 15. So if you've got a queue of patients outside, that red patient at the end of the queue definitely be dead after 75 minutes. Mm-hmm. I think we all agree. Okay. But we need to somehow get to that person, don't we? Yeah. Okay. What people don't appreciate that even the seventh patient in the queue who has an arterial bleed, which perhaps had three to four minutes to bleed out already, the seventh patient in the queue of 100 would be dead as well mm. if we did things properly. And let's be honest, real world situation, getting jackets off, clothes, yada, 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 yada. Probably the sixth, fifth, and even the fourth patient in the queue might be dead as well. We don't have 45 seconds to, to, to do these people. We need to seek out red or dead and keep moving forward. Keep that flow absolutely crystal clear going forward. So let's take that at that Las Vegas Mandalay Bay shooting. 59 people de- died. 500 or so were injured. And that was despite being really, really, really close to a number of really good level one trauma centers. They were trapped. They were trapped waiting to be triaged. Scene time was unbelievably long and they just needed to leave the scene. And that is a, that's a constant theme in any of these cases which we dissect. Every minute counts. So for every one minute response time, you increase mortality by 2%. And that, that's a paper published in the, the American Journal of Surgery. Every minute counts the impact of pre-hospital response times and scene times on mortality in penetrating trauma. Unbelievable. You have to identify the truly life-saving pathologies and either stop the dying process or move them rapidly to someone who can. You have to ask yourself, where are our bottlenecks in the system? And, and the case ni- nicely highlights some of those. If you, if you dig into that case properly, how do we manage things well? That's what we've got to think about. You know, if you take, we had, we had, a, we had a horrific crash, you know, in, in Farron 4 a number of years ago, 15 patients, 11 kids, all trapped, all injured, right? And we were two and a half hours away from a major trauma center. You know, you have to be realistic. We can't have teams in every single town and village. With, you know, the skill fade would be tremendous. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. ambulance resources are limited. So when you do have those big rural crashes, what, you know, what do we do? We can dispatch suitably trained, suitably equipped, suitably experienced senior decision makers. And I think that's the key. You know, get people who are empowered to either ship on the reds, get them moving quickly and empowered to make good decisions, sensible decisions that aren't necessarily uh, hand-strung by rules and protocols. Break the rules if you like, okay? Or additionally, utilize the community paramedics, utilize community uh, ventures like the APCAR to get senior decision makers to that crash site to be able to properly and appropriately treat and manage the minor injuries. Not just think, okay, we transport everybody to hospital. 
Because yeah. you transport everybody to the hospital, what happens? You simply move the bottleneck to the hospital. And then a whole other major incident happens. A very good example of this, of, of things done well, was the collective nightclub fire. It was a deadly fire in Bucharest. 64 people died and 146 injured. And it was best known, um, actually, for the resignation of the Prime Minister of the time over planning legislation and corruption. But what is not as well known is um, we had an amazing medical response. So the, the Romanian Health Service team was led by a very good friend of mine, the Secretary of State, Rairat Arafat. And he recognized that a number of Burns patients would totally overwhelm the Romanian healthcare system capacity immediately. And he enabled his pre-hospital critical care teams to fly seriously burned casualties directly from the scene to all around Europe, in, engaging a European, uh, you know, the European system that can do that. And he spread the workload throughout Germany, France, the Netherlands, the UK, and even Norway, you know, direct from the scene. Break down the barriers, flexibility, empower senior decision makers to do the right thing. You know, these bottlenecks can be managed and they need to be managed. So, so take coming into the hospital just for a second, radiology, it's always going to be challenging resources. Do we have systems in place with a big accident such as this happening to coordinate and triage requests appropriately? Or are we just piling the requests in the same outdated computer systems and, and just hoping for the best? No, we don't. What about how do we prioritize samples in the lab? Critical samples in the lab. Do we make more use of, for example, point of care um, diagnostics in the midst of chaos? Whatever happens, the system needs to empower and enable senior decision makers. And being too rigid really seriously hinders flow. That that's really my two cents on on that. And I hope I haven't knocked anything that was going on because it was fantastic work done and seriously um, by the book stuff. But I do question, are we doing the right thing with all yeah. those rigid protocols? No, you definitely didn't knock any of it. Like, to be honest, I think that just kind of, I suppose, complemented the work the team did very well in adding that nuance that, to be honest, you know, just comes with experience and kind of thinking as deeply as you have about these things, obviously. Um, and I suppose the challenge is, how do we bring that kind of nuance into into the real world when everyone has these, you know, rules that, you know, dictate how we should approach these things? And, you know, like you said, if it, if it was me in that situation, I'd probably do it all by the book, you know, because I'm not as experienced and as knowledgeable in that field as you are, Jason. So like, how, how would you suggest that we bring that the field forward? Well, I mean, it's very challenging considering I, 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 wear, the, I wear the feck hat as well. Um, and and I'm part of past of making these rules and 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 designing them. Um, I think the key is that we need to recognise that that emerging threats are there. Um, we need specialist services set up in in all branches of our emergency services for new and emerging threats. Um, these teams need to be dynamic. They need to be well resourced. They need to have senior clinical decision makers. They need to have senior. Um, tactical or guarded decision makers on them. Mm -hmm. They need to have senior fire and rescue or senior coast guard people on them to be able to go out there and it's not as much break the rules, but it's more about thinking deeply about the consequences of actions and being able to reroute or re-navigate to avoid bottlenecks wherever those bottlenecks are in the system. Very good. Jason? Thanks a million for taking the time. 
Always a pleasure. For our final segment, Prof Simon Carley is visiting professor at Manchester Metropolitan University and a consultant in adult and paediatric emergency medicine at Manchester Foundation Trust. He is the creator and editor-in-chief of the St. Emlyn's blog and podcast and is also co-founder of Best Bets and the MSc in Emergency Medicine at Manchester Metropolitan University. He is also an associate editor for the Emergency Medicine Journal. You can find him on Twitter at EMManchester. This month, we are delighted to have him share some critical pearls of wisdom with Mo from Manchester's experience of a major incident. Prof Carly, thanks so much for joining us on the Case Star Report. It's an absolute pleasure having you here with us. It's um, great to uh, take part, actually, and thanks very much for the invite. Great. So uh, let's get straight into it. So I suppose my first question for you is just about trauma care in Manchester and how it's delivered. So I know Manchester has a collaborative MTC. What exactly is that? Oh, well, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a political answer to that. There's a real answer and there's a practical day-to-day answer. So it's an interesting model, isn't it? I, I don't think it's one that anyone would have gone out and designed. But when major trauma centres came in, it so happened that the services in Manchester were not all in the right place or all in one place, shall we say. So we've got Salford Royal um, Hospital over on the east side of the city, which has been the neurosciences centre for our region for a long period of time. And we've got Manchester Royal, which is in the centre of the city, which has pretty much lots of the other things that you'd want in a major trauma centre, like interventional radiology, ophthalmology, obstetrics, paediatrics, maxillary facial surgery. And then plastics is at Withenshaw, which is down the road. So if you wanted to get the system where you had all your specialties on one site in Manchester. Firstly, the geography would be very difficult to do. And secondly, it'd be fiendishly expensive. And so that didn't happen for whatever reason. This, you know, These sort of decisions are made at pay grades far beyond mine. And we've got this collaborative model. So it's one trauma centre, two admitting sites, and with some additional specialist services in other hospitals. So essentially, we have quite a good, and it is good, actually, it's, it's pretty effective. And the data shows this as well pretty good pre-hospital triage tools to identify those patients who require to come to my hospital, which is where we deal with most of the torso injuries and all of the penetrating trauma apart from isolated head penetrating trauma, or those patients who've got isolated heads when they go to Salford Royal. And and there's a bit of crossover in both. So quite a few heads end up with us, quite a few spines end up with us, mm-hmm. quite a few um, torso stuff ends up in Hope, but we can cope with those things because for the vast majority of patients, they don't have that incredibly time-critical head injury. So the incredibly time-critical head injury that needs to go to the Neurosciences Centre absolutely first off, it's not that common. And similarly, and, and, if, and when they do occur, they're, they're relatively easy to spot with the pre-hospital tools. And similarly, your penetrating trauma, who definitely needs to come to us, i.e. the shocked, continually bleeding trauma, penetrating injury, is pretty easy to spot when they come to us. So it sounds like a crazy system from the outside, but actually it kind of works. I suppose that probably complicates things a little bit when you're planning responses to potential major incidents, does it? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, I think if you're operating within uh, the normal services, so you've got the normal services responding, then they try and do what they would ordinarily do. 
So you would identify the scene. So, you know, take the Ariana Grande bombing, um, which is the one we're going to talk about today. It's the most recent one that's in our minds. You know, there were patients there who had um, clear evidence of, of spine or brain injury, and they could be directed towards um, Salford. And those who didn't have those kind of injuries or children who were directed to us. And in fact, they did a pretty good job. I think there was only one patient that um, got transferred between the two sites. In a major instance, it's also easy to convince surgical teams and specialist teams to travel. It's easy to get people to be adaptable and to do things slightly differently because it is a major incident. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. There's good people out there. Good, good. And I suppose touching on that particular major incident from 2017. So what what lessons has the system, I suppose, learned following those uh, those tragic events? Um, and I, I know a lot of us will have heard you talk about the telephone cascade, you know, as, as, as one example of something that, uh, that you've taken away from that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things which um, have come out already from that and also which will come out over time as the inquiry reports. As you're, you're fully aware, there's a, a, a very large and long public inquiry going on at the moment, which is looking at, at all aspects of the response right the way from police and um, intelligence services work before anything happened and then the response to it as well. And that's that's been quite challenging. I think there's been very few aspects of, of my care over the years or any of my colleagues which has had such a degree of scrutiny so long after the event. I think that's been quite difficult. But let's look at the positives and let's look at things that we've learned from the the event. So yeah, we talked about cascade systems and the traditional model for your poor hospital receptionist to try and get hold of the relevant people and for them to then be cascaded out into individual specialties for them to keep trying to capture people clearly didn't work and, and doesn't work. And what happened after after the Ariana Grande bombing and also similar um, incidents in London at that time is I think most people now have adopted WhatsApp or Signal or choose your confidential social media messaging system of choice groups. So let's say WhatsApp groups to allow people to alert each other using the technology which we use day by day. We're familiar with, it's effective, it reaches a large number of people quite quickly and allows people to respond and say whether they can come or they can't. And that's really good. The problem with it is you have to be awake or have it turned on or be answering your messages in the middle of the night. And that can be a problem. And so Pete Hume, who's one of my colleagues, has actually developed an app which sits on Apple platforms, um, which will allow you to send out a major incident alert and then allow people to say whether they can come back, yes or no. And that works even if your phone's um, turned on to silent or you've got it on nighttime settings. So a bit of innovation there. WhatsApp group's great. Um, if you want to go a stage further, then get in touch with Pete Hume and he can talk you through the the app as well. And I suppose, can we touch on the patient display? personal framework and whether there are any challenges or any kind of new learnings around that? Yeah, so I think in any major instance, the principles are, well, the principles that we teach are that you try and do what you would normally do in day-to-day practice. So in our system, you try and take the patients who would be suitable for Manchester Royal, my hospital, to there. You take the patients who are suitable for Salford and to Salford. The problem comes with numbers, really. And once you start getting more patients than you can cope with. Now, Judging how many patients you can accept is one of the questions that as an emergency planner or as an ED consultant, you you may well be asked and say, well, okay, how many cases do you think in your hospital you would be prepared to accept at P1, P2, P3 level in the first hour or the first two hours or the first four hours? And how how many could you see? And it's one of those really interesting questions, I think, because on the one hand, 
you have to pluck a number out of thin air to some extent, which will be based a little bit on what your sort of physical capacity is. But secondly, in a major incident, to some extent, you're going to get what you're given. And some of it will arrive by the ambulance service. But in, in our case, in the major incidents I've been involved in, many patients will arrive by non-traditional means in the back of a police car, in a taxi, in a tram on one occasion. Um, and so it's difficult. So from a planning point of view, the, the sort of casualty distribution plan does have a base on how many patients can be accepted in each area. And we've said for our hospital, for the two major trauma center admitting sites, so Salford and MRI, they could take 20 uh, P1 casualties straight off. How many patients you would then disperse once you'd reach that maximum to other units, those trauma units, is complicated. Because you're not just judging what kind of patients go there in terms of their severity, but also in the capabilities of those areas. So I try and explain what I mean by that is that there is a patient who's got a penetrating injury to the to I don't know the face and eyes, then they're best sent to our location because we've got max fax and ophthalmology. But somebody who's got a penetrating injury to the abdomen may well be suitable, although not ideal, but it may be somebody who you might choose to send to a non to a trauma unit, mm -hmm. which may be able to deal with an isolated body injury type event. So it's really complicated. And that's why in the Northwest, and one of the learning factors that came out of the, the Ariana Grande bombing is that the NWAS service, well, it didn't come out of the bombing, it was in there before, but it's been reinforced by it, is NWAS have a very robust system for the management of major incidents. And there's a whole team of doctors whose sole role is to act as medical advisors and forward doctors, not really doing patient care, but helping with the assessment and the distribution and the organization, particularly the distribution of casualties from the scene as medical advisors to the ambulance commanders on site. And that's how our merit team works. There's, there's other versions of merit, other flavors of merit team in different parts of the country. But in the Northwest, they have this specifically trained cohorts who do specialist training just on this question, really. And that we think is a better way of doing it. It means we can select the patients to go to the right place or as good as you can go at the time. So yeah, a lot of work in that area, but it's, it's complicated and it is hard. And, and of course it also gets hard when you start talking about children. So we've also said that you could take 20 children to the children's hospital, but if the incident involved large numbers of children, then we would shift the, the, the trigger point um, to go to children's hospitals. And we would say that anybody over the age of 12 could go to an adult hospital because the capacity in the children's hospitals is never as big as it is in the adult hospitals for obvious reasons. And so you can shift that marker down and go from the age of 12, again, with you know careful consideration and at the discretion and the, and the view of the, the commanders on scene and the advisors on scene. It's a tricky one. Okay. Okay. I suppose a component of a lot of hospitals' major uh, incident plans at the moment would be those cruciform triage cards, physical cards where the patient's information is um, is written down. Were there limitations associated with those um, that you identified or what kind of things can you see to kind of overcome those? Again, it's a good question. I think there's relatively little evidence of people using those kind of cards um, in real life, actually or certainly not using them in the way that they were intended to. I think as, a, as they can be used as a visual sort of indicator of priority, but in terms of recording data, they, they don't function terribly well. We have done quite a lot of work with that, um, and maybe it'll be different in future instances. But one of the issues that you have is that, as I said before, 
is you've got a plan in your head that the patients will go from um, you know, from the scene to a casualty collection point, and they'll go from the casualty collection point to the casualty clearing station. They go from the casualty clearing station to the ambulance loading area. They'll go from the ambulance loading area to the hospital. But of course, patients don't do that. They have lots of other ways that they can go through the system, and they may not stop for prolonged periods of time to have um, you know um, various different elements observed or recorded. So it can be complicated. So you'll have this one stream of patients who may work well with that kind of um, paper-based information flow system, but expect the unexpected and that there'll be a whole bunch of patients who don't go through that system. I mean, fundamentally, it's difficult to argue against the idea that we should indicate the patient's priority in a visual fashion and that we should record observations and we should record clinical findings as they go through the system. You can't really argue against that, can you? You just can't do it. But the practicalities are, and I'm a pragmatist, is that in many cases we struggle to do that effectively. People have proposed all sorts of things like um, taking around a bag of barcodes um, on Mm -hmm. wristbands and doing it with electronic devices and things like that. But then it does somewhat rely on the right people with the right training to be there at the right time. And certainly in the early phases of a major incident, there's, there's a degree of a degree of complexity in that area, which would make that very difficult. It's a tough one to crack. Um, so I, d- I don't think we should abandon these things. I think but we've, we've just got to recognize that they do have limitations. Okay. Bearing all those different bits in mind that you've taken away from that particular experience, have you seen the system adapting since then or how has it adapted? And do you see that there's more scope for it to um, to improve and so that you're, this, the whole system is better prepared for the next major incident? Yeah, I mean, I think major incident planning in general is something which you need to keep going all the time it's not something that's a reactive task so you don't wait for the next one then upgrade your plans it should be going on ongoing um i'm trying to pick i mean so much has changed really but i'm trying to pick out a few things and um, there was quite a, a, re- a really interesting article we were just sort of mentioned before um from the london teams wasn't there about the provision of medical aid at the scene of incidents and particularly things like marauding terrorist in- incidents or mtas as we, we refer to them um those kind of instances where patients can suffer significant injury, which is time critical. Um, so people are ble- bleeding to death who require perhaps relatively small amounts of medical intervention, such as tourniquets and, and bandages. And the old model, and certainly something we saw um, locally um, years ago, was that medical care would not proceed to the patient unless it was absolutely clear that the scene was safe. And it's extremely difficult to make scenes completely safe, particularly in things like MTAs, where the the event may itself be mobile and the range of the weapons is, is, is really quite considerable. So it's very complicated ways of managing that. And just not allowing anybody to go in is going to lead to a um, large number of, of preventable deaths. And so various different people are looking at this. Um, certainly the French have talked about it um, and have a very well-established system whereby they have specifically trained clinicians um, who can move into um, areas which are not safe, but where they've had particular training to try and be as safe as they can and to deliver care. Um, in the UK, certainly our firearms police and certainly locally, our firearms police in Manchester are absolutely fantastic dealing with uh, uh, penetrating injuries and they will have that ability but in a major instance with an mta you know there's lots of different scenarios you could think about where they could be occupied doing other things rather than just treating the casualties so we now have what's known as a sort team um, in the northwest and we have heart teams and you might be familiar with heart teams hazardous area response teams 
and they do the swift water rescue, the, the aerial stuff, um, uh, chemical and biological radiation type uh, responses. They're a national resource in the UK. But now we've got sort of not one grade below, but a large number of people are being um, brought into SORT, which is Special Operations Response Team, I think. And um, they are a group of people who do additional training in CBRN and also in MTA. Um, and they are therefore, in the future, we're going to have a cohort of people who are trained to use personal protective equipment for that kind of scenario, who are able to go into areas much further forward than we would traditionally have done with people who didn't have that training. And we're very hopeful that we can bring that level of care forward. Because you'll know, you'll have read about the Ariana Grande bombing, about perceived delays, mm. about uh, medical care getting to the patients. In fact, I don't think it's perceived. I think that the evidence is there that there was a significant delay for a number of patients getting care. And perhaps mm -hmm. we would have had more survivors and less morbidity if the current system was in place back then. So that's progress. I mean, that's not criticizing the past. That's, you know, that's lessons learned, making improvements and getting better. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. You mentioning that, like the patient experiences from that uh, Darian, Ariana Grande concert, um, the that was probably the most striking part of the EMJ publication was the the little um, text box with the the patient correspondence really makes it very real and visceral, I suppose. I suppose that kind of leads me on to the next bit that I was going to ask you about. You know, this is a fairly evidence light area, and it's probably very important that we share our learning in this. Um, can you, you know, give any, I suppose, advice on um, kind of sharing learning um, in these kind of scenarios? You're absolutely right. I think... Yeah, so, I mean, it's a really interesting question about how we share the learning because it's clearly incredibly important that we discuss these events because they're rare, so there's not a huge amount of information out there, and it's constantly changing, so we need to learn. But that's a problem because we've also got patient confidentiality, and we can't just go and release um, patient-identifiable information, so physiological data, you know, events, ages, all of that kind of stuff is complex. And so in the past, we've, we've, we've struggled with really narrative based um, descriptions of how major incidents have worked. And that, you know, that's okay. But what we want is data, we want facts. And so we did publish, as, as you quite rightly mentioned, um, a paper in the EMJ that described the, the events of the Ariana Grande bombing. But that took, what, three, four years for us to get out? And the reason for that is we took a lot of advice from ethics committees with the BMJ Publishing Group, with EMJ and others, and also had incredibly good collaborative working with Manchester City Council, who was supporting the family, families and the victims of the, of the incident. And essentially, we tried to contact every single person who was known to be involved in the incident and all their families. And we asked their permission um, if it was okay for us to publish. And we sent them pre-copies of the document before it went out. And we thought that was really important. But it's incredibly laborious to do. And, and people like Paul Dark, who was lead author on the paper, did an a huge amount of work to make this happen. So I think that from the sort of the ethics and the logistics and the confidentiality is really important. And, and we've now developed a model that other people can use. And, you know, please copy what we did. We think it's a, a good idea. The other thing that happened is that the TARN database which records all of the um, major trauma um, patients in the UK, or most of the major trauma patients in the UK, have now opened what's called a special module on there. So that if a major incident happens, you can put into TARN all the data of everybody who was involved, even if they weren't actually a major trauma patient. So you can put all your minor injuries in or minor illness. They can all go into that module as well. So we've now got one base and one 
program one huge database that will acquire all of that normal physiological data and we can then use that for future analysis so that's another innovation that came out of the Ariana Grande bombing and I suppose the third thing is just persistence because these things take a long period of time and you've also got to do them alongside things like the the public inquiries which are probably going to happen these days and so negotiating the politics and negotiating what is now quite a long timeline is necessary but you know sadly it is a bit frustrating it does take a long long time Mm -hmm. okay and just to finish up on one last note just on from one of your blogs from before um you're kind of reflecting on some of the talks at the WAST in 2017 and one of the key takeaways that you'd mentioned was that the key to successful incident management is to prepare and practice with your team how do you prepare and practice with your team in Manchester? So I suppose it depends on which team we're, we're thinking about. Um, if we're thinking about the pre-hospital response, so as talked before, we have the merit teams and they do regular training. We go out to regular exercises throughout the year and meet people so that, the, so that when the actual incident happens, there's a very high probability that you're going to turn up there and meet people that you already know. Um, for those of us who work in um, either basic schemes, so pre-hospital basic schemes, or with the air ambulance, again, you've probably got quite a degree of familiarity with people who are going to be there. In hospital, it's more complicated, um, but you can run all sorts of exercises in hospital. You can run tabletop exercises. You can send people on some of the, the courses. My obviously conflict of interest is things like the HMIMS course, which I think is great because partly wrote it, um, and get your key people into those. But you can do stuff locally. You can just do little tabletop exercises um, in your own department, run through how would we manage some casualties coming through. You can test your admin systems about whether or not we would be able to book people on using our major instance systems. And you can have a look at things like stock checks about how would we get this amount of kit into the departments in a short period of time. You can put the CBRN tent up outside. There's lots of things that you can do. And I know, for instance, in Manchester, there's a couple of exercises coming up soon, which will involve the hospitals and will challenge them with some quite difficult cases. So, you know, there's a lot you can do if you put your mind to it. I guess what you really need is you want somebody who's really interested in it, who's keen on major instant planning, who's happy to organize this sort of stuff. Because it's it's about getting somebody into the place, isn't it? Who's going to do the, do the donkey work and actually make it happen brilliant uh professor carly thanks so much again for your time we really appreciate having you on and that was a fantastic interview thank you oh thanks for your time and uh, any questions by all means get people to get in touch and uh, yeah thanks for everything you do mate i think i need a minute I'm still enthralled from listening to both our adult in the room, Dr. Van der Velde and Prof. Simon Carley. It's an amazing opportunity to hear from experts like these about how we currently manage major incidents and paths that we can navigate in order to progress and move forwards. It's all about keeping an open mind. And it's one of the reasons that I love emergency medicine. It's about pushing boundaries and constantly improving how we approach situations in order to better help the most critically unwell patients. Any papers and publications referenced throughout will be in our show notes on the case.report website. But get in touch and let us know what you think about anything you heard. You'll find us on Twitter at the case.report to join the discussion. But for now, that's it from us. We'll see you next month. TCR out. Mm-hmm.